Welcome to the Loose Filter Podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Sims, and this is episode 112, The Maximum Impact of Minimalism. And I'm really genuinely excited to present this episode to you because I think we managed to weave together a story about how a really high concept kind of avant-garde musical movement and aesthetic achieved tremendous success in the popular sphere and did so with astonishing speed. Uh, Dave and Lissette and I sit down and have a conversation where we cover a lot of ground. We start in the mid-60s and come all the way up to the present day. We listen to a couple of dozen examples, and I don't really want to say any more about it than that other than to say I think that many of you are going to find uh, sounds that are new to you but that really resonate because they're going to be strangely familiar because of how influential a lot of these sounds are. So anyway, we look at at origins and then we really quickly jump into tracing the influence of these minimalism ideas, minimalistic ideas, all the way up to the present day. It's a super fun ride, packed with a lot of great music, and I think you're going to love it. As always, you can find the Loose Filter Project online at loosefilter.com, where we have all of our podcast episodes, as well as original material, and we curate other interesting content we think you'll enjoy. You can find the podcast feed itself on SoundCloud, or you can subscribe uh, through iTunes. Uh, As always, if you'd like to give us any feedback, shoot us a line at... Uh, loosefilter at gmail.com and now I am excited to present to you the maximum impact of minimalism Musical minimalism. So well, what, let's start with some salient features. Yeah, what are the features? If, if I'm hearing music and I can identify it and say that is minimalist music, not like minimalistic, not as an adjective, mm-hmm. but this is actually formally music written in this style of composition, like the Viennese classical school or rock music or a style of minimalism. What are the characteristics? I would say very gradual processes. That what do you over mean time. by processes? Very gradual processes. Well, basically t- setting two things kind of in motion or two or more things in motion happening at different rates and watching a very gradual change or repeating the same type of material and changing small element of them over time. The the actual elements, the musical elements, the musical material is much more limited. Um, we, we're working with a, a, a smaller toolbox as and doing compared, a lot with it. As compared to maybe traditional tonal music, let's right. say, where the rate of change is actually pretty fast. Yeah. You're getting chord, 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 cadence. You know, there's a lot of information that's Whereas going by. Whereas a chord is going to be a pretty big deal. So, yeah, a minimalist <laughs> will sit on a yeah. chord for, you know, a minute, uh, two yeah, minutes, three minutes, ten minutes. The type of repetition is different. I mean, in one pop song, you may get a chorus four times. But, I mean, in minimalist music, it really you can be sitting, like you said, on a single chord for a very long time. Thank you. 
why the repetition? Why did they want to slow down the music so much? Why did they want to use much more simple and direct, you know, means, material? And and why um, is the rate of, uh, you know, the the rate of change so well for me so, it, it so keeps slow. It keeps all of the, uh, <laughs> I guess the the musical means very apparent and transparent. Like so you, you don't hear need everything a score that's going on. to follow along. You can know okay. exactly what's going on so by listening. It makes it easier to perceive. Yeah, for, for the listener. For the listener to, to literally get your aural hands on what you're hearing. Okay. For me, it's more of a stop and smell the roses. So I envision this kind of like if you have a video of a flower blossoming and it plays really fast, it just it looks like it just kind of explodes and it's there. But with it in minimalism you have kind of like it slowed down where you can see every single individual petal opening up and you can appreciate how each of them adds to that so it's like high speed photography yeah or or like like you can you can slow that down and see how every single tiny idea adds to the whole and appreciate each one as it occurs you can like look at a painting for as long as you want but music you kind of have to uh well that's well that's the key point right music is a temporal art and so the the by the middle of the 20th century what had happened in music composition the rate of change and the complexity had gotten to a degree that it was it was kind of crazy even you know my ears your ears our ears are highly trained and a lot of that music is just plain work to listen yeah. to Uh, I don't dispute that it is substantial, wonderful music, but woo, it's so much information and, and it's coming at you in real time and it's totally intangible. There's not any kind of visual or tactile frame of reference. And, and the, the means, the theory behind it isn't necessarily going to be very transparent. It's going to be pretty obscure. Like right. you have to know. The process is going to be well, obscure. And I do exactly. think the purpose for why it's written is very knowledge. different too. So a lot of those earlier composers that were writing those incredibly thick textures and going in a lot of crazy harmonic directions were really thinking about it from a compositional standpoint. Like what do I want to say? Whereas a minimalist composer is more likely to think of like, what kind of experience will this give the listener? That's the thing I wanted to add to the points you guys had made, that for me, the, the overarching reason that they slow things down, that the rate of change is so slowed down and the amount of material is so limited, is because it's focused not on, like you said, Lisette, the work of music itself, this thing I have created, but the experience of the listener. So these composers were thinking of their music as a, a, a means to create a particular kind of experience for the listener. And the experience they were trying to create, like Steve Reich wrote in his seminal essay in 1968, Music is a Gradual Process, uh, that it stops becoming about me and you, and you sort of leave your ego in, as you attune to this process, and we all become about it. 
instead of about ourselves. It's almost existential music in a way. Or or like transcendental meditation. I mean, literally yeah, getting it is out of your ego. meditative music, yes. They consciously wanted to induce that. They wanted that to be part of the listening experience. And that's a radical change. I don't think like the change in means, the change in ideas about what the music is supposed to do. Like it's all so radical. It's wonderful. Uh, and it's, it's radical because it's, it's so simple. It's just, it strikes me as funny to, to say that like, it was such a radical idea to make music that people would enjoy listening to. <laughs> you know? But that's where we were. And radical. These to people be are like... crazy. <laughs> right. We were all born too late. And that's part of the that's one of the points of this whole of episode. This whole, yeah, exactly. is, is that this significant avant-garde conceptual kind of high art, you know, musical movement, uh, I think for my money, more successfully than any other movement or idea or aesthetic I can think of penetrated and permeates popular culture like in terms of being seminal in the literal sense of that word this is one of the most it has to be one of the most successful artistic movements or schools of thought of ever i mean you know certainly of the last hundred years well it it permeates outside of the academic and intellectual cloister that music of this type had sat in for some time because of that radical idea that it was oriented to the listener yeah and and go figure listeners responded I wanted to share that are kind of the big bang of musical minimalism right in the mid 60s 1964 1965 and it's from the the first the two the earlier two of our founding four composers of minimalism and of course those founding four are Lamont Young, Terry Riley, Steve Reich and Philip Glass. Riley in 1964 uh, out here in Northern California composed and premiered a piece called In C. And a young Steve Reich, who was a student at the time, played on the premiere of that piece. What I think was even more challenging is the kind of listening it requires is very different from all the music people were kind of conditioned or accustomed to up to that point. So let's listen to a little bit of In C. So in that excerpt, you hear the, obviously the repeated material, Mm -hmm. you know, ideas over and over again. You hear the consonant uh, use of harmony. You hear the regular pulsations. You hear the slowed down rate of change. Uh, And I also wanted to pair that with uh, a sample from Lamont Young 
and four of his collaborators who performed at the Dream Syndicate. In 1965, they did these performances called Inside the Dream Syndicate. They would go all night, and there were these semi-composed, semi-improvised, semi-experiential sort of be-ins that would go on. And they were really provocative. For I'm sure for a number of listeners, this was sort of closer to the listening experiences they were used to with the Early psychedelic jam bands, right? Yeah, maybe. But what you're going to hear is a lot of like slow motion manipulation of timbre. Oh, yeah. And... I'm not saying that's, that, that's nothing new. What I'm saying is that for some audiences, I think this might have yeah. been actually like a little closer. What the length of time to. and the yeah. freeform open nature. Yeah, probably so, actually. But, but the actual musical material and how you need to listen to it. That's the thing why, why I think it's important to start this conversation with looking a little bit historically at the origins of minimalism Mm -hmm. because you have to listen to it differently you can't listen to it with the expectation that first of all something's going to happen it really asks you to be in the present rather than thinking about the future yeah it's less anticipatory than music usually is right and it's not forward moving as much as you know restlessly staying in place and, you know, I don't know what the right description that didn't sound like. Anyway, <laughs> this is Lamont Young and his collaborators inside the Dream Syndicate from 1965. Also in 1965, you get the young Steve Reich. He was working with uh, uh, tape, yeah, with recorded sound uh, initially, and was sort of working on creating a sound sculpture using recording of a street preacher. It's a very famous piece of his called It's Gonna Rain. Yeah. And he accidentally discovered phase shifting because the two tape decks he was trying to sync up a sample of the same recording we're running at different speeds and phase shifting is a big thing in minimalistic music a lot of composers will use yeah originated by reich in this tape piece it's gonna rain and then really refined compositionally in a solo piano piece called piano phase and the idea behind phase based composition is just like it sounds you have an idea that's played simultaneously against itself. So two, you know, two voices of the same idea exactly. In unison. In unison. And one voice slowly is is a little bit slower. They just repeat an idea mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again. And one of the voices is a little bit slower. And so as the repetitions, you know, continue. It gets further and further behind. Get further and further behind. That's the phase shifting. They move further out of phase. And what Reich re- discovered is that once they start to move more than a little bit out of phase, you start to hear things that aren't actually there. So they create really interesting patterns. Yeah. He called them the psychoacoustic byproducts, the unintended psychoacoustic byproducts of a compositional process. So what he did in this tape piece, It's Gonna Rain, is he slowly moves this clip, you know, this guy's screaming, it's gonna rain, out of phase with itself until at a certain point, it doesn't even sound like a human voice anymore. Mm-hmm. He's added nothing. He's process- it's, it's simply it being out of phase with itself and the way the sound behaves. Mm-hmm. So as a composer, he didn't create a piece of music. 
He created a process. He chose the material to put into the process. But then he's along for the ride with the listeners to find out what happens. So this is a short clip of It's Gonna Rain so you can hear it done with the human voice. And then we'll listen to a little bit of piano phase where he does it in a composed manner with a human playing the pattern on. And it's not tapes anymore. Or two uh, two humans actually normally play it, sorry. (laughs) So here's 1965, It's Gonna Rain. He began to warn the people. He said, after a while, it's going to rain after a while. For 40 days and for 40 nights. And the people didn't believe him. And they began to laugh at him. And they began to mock him. And they began to say, it ain't going to rain. And again, that that's only possible because of the slow process mm-hmm. that is at the center of the idea of that piece. This is what it sounds like when it's done on piano. Piano phase, that's like a metric um, slowing down. Like, like, how exactly is this occurring? It's two players play the pattern. And they play it exactly in unison. Mm-hmm. And they have a predetermined number of repetitions. Right. And uh, over the that number of repetitions, player one maintains speed and uh, time exactly for mm-hmm. the whole piece, actually. Player one just repeats the pattern and doesn't vary. Player two, over the number of the repetitions very gradually slows down until when the repetitions loop they have lost slipped, back into they have lost yeah. track exactly one eighth note worth of time and then they do it again so you're hearing the patterns go out of phase and that's when they sound like they have tracers and the, yeah. the kind of stutter effects and things and then it'll lock in and you're hearing the attacks line up yeah and you get different permutations because it's the pattern looping against itself at different points. So that kind of showcases a lot of basically typical early minimalist music. Yeah, and that's in the United States. Yeah. Yes. Is where that's coming from. And now it was it was, you know, hugely just that movement of those four composers, the music of those four composers, uh Young, Riley, Reich and Glass, very influential on its own. But over on the other side of the pond in Germany, this aesthetic also, amidst all that complexity and mm-hmm. dissonance and 
all that stuff because of the experimentation uh, of with electronic music and sequencing, uh, especially that the composer Caroline Stockhausen was doing. This aesthetic was slipping into uh, a German, I guess, rock bands. It came out of rock. Yeah, bands, they're, yeah? they're they're rock. They they actually were like sort of like jammy kind jammy of rock, rock bands band from the mid '60s. Yeah, right? but, same uh, time. Yeah, exact same time, and they were sort of being influenced by the uh, sort of psychedelic rock jam, uh, jam bands back in the states. Um, but they were also going to music school and talking to Stockhausen and, <laughs> and learning about electronic and instruments came and synthesizers. Yeah. yeah, and sound synthesis. And we call that Kraut Rock. Right, and I should... Which I guess is offensive, but it's what it's called. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, it's no, no like, and like German people aren't, I don't think, going to be offended at the term Kraut Rock, but it was a, kind of a put-down, you know, that English people used. It, yeah. it originated in Britain and British DJs. Uh, called it that kind of derisively. Yeah. But, you know, when when you're much more influential and seminal, you win! <laughs> yeah, but then everybody really loved it, and so yeah. now it's more so of an Crot affectionate Rock is now that, Yeah, that's yeah. what it's called. So what happened was these bands were kind of experimental. They were influenced by psychedelic rock, prog yeah. rock, but then they got into electronic instruments, synthesizers and sequencing specifically. Yeah. It caused a huge change in the sound. And those processes are minimalistic, right? So that, okay. The characteristics that we hear in this Krautrock bands, especially as they went electronic, we're talking about Kraftwerk, Neut, Kahn, and uh, like Tangerine, Klaus Schulze, and and Tangerine Dream. So these are bands that made their way to the United States. Yeah, you've heard these. You know these names. Yeah, German music history that we're talking about here. So these influences are the machines themselves. Yeah, like because because uh, like uh, like just as far as repetition goes, because the, these sequencers only had a limited amount because it's actually just a voltages, like a very limited amount of memory. So you got like sixteen steps, and you got to put that in there, and then you can play with the knobs with both hands, you know, instead of having to play the whole thing. And that that actually had a huge impact on the sound of the music. Is simply that. The limitations of the machinery. So basically, just like Steve Reich was playing with the tape and what kind of technology that similar know. kind of influence. Ooh, there was one thing I wanted to add about the tape. Uh, we, we mentioned that as a process. I would like to mention that that is an extremely meticulous and difficult thing to do to chop up tape like that because he did have to tape all that stuff together. Yeah, just how like, miserable, right? Yeah. We just like click and cut That's and drag. Hours and, oh, and hours gosh. of work. Yeah, what I can do in five minutes on <laughs> yeah. GarageBand would have taken three weeks by hand. Uh, so, okay, so there's the, the machines themselves, the psychedelic rock, and then the things that came in from Stockhausen, because, like, two of the guys in Khan were Stockhausen students. Yeah. I mean, these were, like, direct influences uh, from that avant-garde, uh, the German avant-garde, into popular music. The uh, found sounds, uh, yeah, electronic synthesis. Khan does that a lot, with and, just, like, manipulating noise. Yeah. And regular beats, right? Yeah. Regular pulses is are, are, are a real characteristic of this music. Yeah, the motoric beat is what they kind of call it. The motoric, and, and you'll you'll recognize it pretty quick. Okay, so we we have a couple of examples, and this takes us into the early seventies. By the mm-hmm. time these bands became all yeah. electronic or all synthesized, uh, the, the first example is Kraftwerk, Autobahn. Yeah.
Oh yeah, so that's <laughs> that's kind of the 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 archetypal Krautrock song. So you hear that beat that the that motoric beat um, is is the basis for a lot of this type of music. Um, and then you can hear all these sequence events going on where where it's the th- same things being repeated because the machine is putting that out, and then they're manipulating the uh, various parts of the timbre manually with a knob. That's right? that's what strikes me is how the minimalist aesthetic fits the sound so well because and i can only imagine in 1974 listener like you wouldn't have heard those sounds a lot no, before they were, they, these machines were coming out they were they coming were, out or, or becoming the, available to people who you would listen to these would have been very new shiny kinds of sounds and the minimalist aesthetic the regular pulse the slow rate of change focusing on the timbre of the sound and changing that slowly mm-hmm. over time fits the instruments like really well yeah the and, then, of and then you get those, those little really well. little insertions of of little little uh, motives across it that, that comes out of that like that's psychedelic, that psychedelic rock, rock band. jam band yeah. yeah so we got we got con which is another uh one of the dusseldorf school uh kraut rock bands uh, i don't know which we pulled up for an example what is this going to be Stuart? this is future days from okay so that's that's off their last now, album you say the yeah. dusseldorf school so there were there were two major schools in this i probably should have waited till we played some tangerine dream to say that but yes there's two really different schools of um that were happening in german electronic music okay in the early so 70s. this one is is con is a, of a piece with Kraftwerk. yeah okay so hold on we'll talk about the two different schools in a second but let's listen to a little bit of future days That's pretty different. Uh, Khan has a lot more uh, world music influence. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, there's a lot of that. And it then, sounds like a folkier thing, even though it is electronics. Yeah, and then you hear a lot of those like electronically manipulated sounds. There's also a lot of live jamming going on. But that also falls under that Dusseldorf school kraut rock banner because you still got that, which is sort of the the primary like part of the aesthetic of the Dusseldorf school. So contrasted to the Dusseldorf school is the Berlin school. The Berlin school, which is like Klaus Schulze and Tangerine Dream. And I'm, it's not actually my preferred school. <laughs> well, it doesn't have that driving beat. Yeah. But I think was hugely influential by the time you get into the early 80s oh, with yeah. all the synth pop. And I mean, that sound, that really large, epic, cathedral-sized sound, but created by synthesizers, yeah. comes out of this, the Berlin yeah. school movement of this Krautrock. Yeah, and, Side and of this crowd. both these examples we played actually had a lot of acoustic instruments still in them, and that actually sort of faded away by the by the mid seventies, where there was they pretty much went full electronic. But we're gonna what are we gonna listen to for our Berlin School example? Uh, some Tangerine here? Dream, All a right. little bit later Tangerine Dream. Jumble our timeline just a little bit. This is nineteen eighty one. This is the Thief soundtrack. Oh, yeah, uh, one of their most well total classic. Yeah. And but this presents their mature sound mm-hmm. and and what we were just describing. So this is from the main title, uh, Tangerine Dream. 1981.
Already, we're not even out of the origins, and this music is so familiar to me yeah. that it's it's it, it becomes like water. It's hard to see it for a distinct set of ideas about music. It's so pervasive now. So contrasting, that's a it's more ethereal, sort of droney. These slow manipulations of filter cutoff and these little arpeggiations that fade in and out. And you don't have that driving beat like you do with the uh, the other things, but you can see how it kind of comes from a sure, similar sure. place. So, so that gives us that's our two kind of legs yeah. of of the origins of this style in the mid '60s into the early '70s of minimalism as an, an yeah. aesthetic. And this is happening purely in the popular sphere, like if, if like as com- as compared to what's going on in America, this is which actually is happening in the avant-garde yeah. compositional sphere. The German music's coming out of the popular sphere, but after an immediate transmission from the avant-garde. Right. It's, that's important to note that, that, that you know, the students of Stockhausen were kind of moved into the, main, the mm-hmm. pop mainstream. It, it makes me curious well, you what would have happened money. Had, <laughs> had that happened more in the United States. Yeah. Had, you know, prominent students of prominent composers taking a left turn into the mainstream. But anyway, uh, so, so that's part one. That's our origins of this sort of aesthetic and, and style, a thumbnail sketch. Uh, uh, and, and now we want to talk about the um, vast influence of this style, how it starts to permeate everything. <laughs> it really does. And right away, 1967, my first example for vast influence is the Velvet Underground. And uh, a guy named John Cale was playing on that 1965 recording of the Dream Syndicate, inside the Dream Syndicate. He was a collaborator of Lamont Young. And... A, you know, a year later, left, started making music with uh, some other guys, one of whom is named Lou Reed, and founded a band called The Velvet Underground. So before you even get out of the 60s, there's a direct transmission from avant-garde experimental, experimental minimalist composition to rock music. And what would become, of course, The Velvet Underground, very influential rock music. So this is one of their early uh, hits. I'm waiting for the man. <laughs> And while that sold only about 30,000 copies when it was first released, it ended up being one of the most influential things that ever happened to rock music. And you can hear that aesthetic, even though the sounds are very different. Regular pulsation, repeated material, very limited harmonic palette. I mean, just the, the what the band's playing is just this little loop over and over and over and over again. So that aesthetic already, boom, translated into rock music before we're out of the 60s. Uh, but probably the most important point of early transmission from that first leg, the avant-garde minimalist composers... This is a bold statement. ...into the popular sphere is in the work of Brian Eno, British uh, musician, recordist, producer, etc., etc. Has had a long and storied career, writer. A man with many influences, with, of many influence, of, many influence, of much right. influence. I'm mixing those. But he, as, as young men, he and David Bowie were in New York. They were at these concerts. They were influenced by this. And Brian Eno has talked about it a lot. 
And in his own music in the 1970s, he translated this aesthetic uh, into what we now consider ambient electronic music, which is birthed whole subgenres of trance and all kinds of stuff. But uh, Eno really put, turned the focus knob in this music of his in the 70s on the idea that it wasn't a musical narrative, but it was a musical place that you went to that a piece of music could be just an environment that you kind of wandered around. As in. ignorable as it is interesting. Exactly. It's, it's However you want to yeah. walk through the garden is, yeah. is you can walk through the garden. Uh, and, and so I think the example I have is 1978 Music for Airports, one of his most famous which, pieces. Which one? Which one were you listening to? Uh, the first movement. The, oh, right. the, the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. The beginning of the piece. That and four are my favorites. And uh, 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 so not not just his music in particular, though, but his work as a producer, collaborating with David Bowie and U2 in the 1980s, um, uh, is, an, is an important point of transmission, this aesthetic. But this is some of Brian Eno's music for airports. I love music for airports so much. What like, is it about it you love? Um, it's beautiful and it's as it's as ignorable as it is interesting. Um, there's just sometimes that I need that, and the space that it puts me in, what it does, like uh, that. And I mean, I have lots of Eno albums in the ambient genre, but that first one, uh, music for airports, is just I go to that a lot when I like need to. Uh, provide some space for my mind i guess but it and it's it's just gorgeous gorgeous timbres um yeah it's it's a wonderful place to be i feel like it invites you to be in the present so much a lot of music carries with a lot of momentum expectation but music like this really encourages you to simply relax and be in the music experience the music as it happens rather than feeling that urge of what's happening next what is this building towards you really lay back in it and just kind of let it whirl around you and it's a very different musical experience than a lot of other styles of music it really does kind of put you in that different meditative headspace yeah. and i feel like it rewards active and passive li listening equally that's i've i've called it choose your own adventure yeah. listening it does let you listen to it in a wide kind of ways yeah we mentioned this ways. in the challenging music podcast when we talked about music for 18 musicians um by yeah, steve that Reich. It you... that it really it's so great that it is something that you can actively listen to every single moment and get a lot of uh enjoyment out of it and you can also have it be something completely in the background and it functions extremely well that way but if you don't have this album go get, go it, get it because you don't know when you're gonna need it but sometimes yeah, you're gonna what? just need it it's very it's utility music which i i, I actually really love like, like i love when music has uses like that i guess and again it's now we're fully it's music that's about the experience of it not mm -hmm. the art object that the composer created of a piece with that is david bowie's work around the same time mm -hmm. when he was uh he was in often there's the berlin trilogy and that's low heroes and lodger 
Um, yeah, seventy-seven to seventy-nine. He was ha- he now Brian Eno wasn't producer on these, but he was hanging out with Brian Eno during this time. I guess they were both in in Berlin at the time, and he was influenced heavily by probably a little more by the Berlin School. But he was what was going on out there with the with the Krautrock. But he has a bro credit. So this is from Lowe, one of his uh, Berlin trilogy. Warzawa is uh, the name of the track this excerpt is from. So this is from David Bowie, also from the late seventies. So again, the aesthetic at this point should be noticeable pretty yeah. clearly. There's a really to... big Klaus Schultz influence on that. You know, like Tangerine. He was part of Tangerine Dreams, right? Uh, I you'll have to I check can take that out. That. And you are wrong. the crowd. You are the crowd uh, rock expert. Don't the <laughs> that is offensive, sir. <laughs> you are the crowd. You are the crowd. Uh, but by this point, by the time you hit the late '70s. This is this is everywhere. Mm-hmm. These influences are everywhere. Uh, the next example is Giorgio Moroder, Donna Summer, uh, I Feel Love. 19- this is particularly sem- seminal because this is where electronic dance music starts. Exactly. And this is why this is a departure for a disco track. This is the first disco track uh, that has an entirely synthesized backing track. No acoustic instruments. And it wasn't just popular music in the sense of like you could hear it on the radio. I mean, this was everywhere this was really like hitting every ubiquitously popular and not just in the states popular uh in well we i guess we hadn't quite penetrated asia but in europe and the states certainly disco was huge in the late 70s and uh this is the track that presaged techno and all of of electronic dance music really uh so here is a little bit of i feel love marauder and summer So the story I I've heard about that I've read somewhere is that uh, when Brian Eno and, and David Bowie are hanging out, and I think maybe David Byrne bursts in the room and says, "This is the sound of the next fifty years of popular music." When this album came out, when this track hit, yeah, yeah, yeah. or yeah, I guess this was not an album, right? Wasn't too far off. Yeah, it wasn't too far, off. and it's amazing how 1978. I mean, that's a long time ago in popular music terms. That's you know an epic ago. Uh, sounds fresh and contemporary in a way that. Certainly no disco sounds. I mean, I there are disco tracks I love, but it sounds like it's music of the late 70s. This, to me, sounds like roots music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like contemporary roots music. I mean, or, or contemporary roots music draws from this. Uh, another example, also from 1978, Mike Oldfield uh, uh, created a track for the soundtrack to the movie The Exorcist called Tubular Bells that became a multi-million dollar bestseller. Like Lissette said... When we say pop music, we're not just talking about the genre of pop music. We're talking about massively popular, multi, multi, multi platinum selling singles and records and albums that uh, lots of people all over the place listen to. So this is, you'll hear in this a little bit more of the minimalist 
prog rock flavor than than the electronica flavor. Uh, this is uh, Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells. that first bar sampled a thousand times right yeah i mean <laughs> you know not just can you hear the 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 minimalist influence on that track but kind of set the template for a lot of movie scores for yeah. the next oh, 30 yeah. years too hugely influential um and we'll talk about that in part three the yeah the, uh, some of the evidence of minimalism in contemporary movie scores even where we hear it uh, another example we have you move into the 80s 1981 the performance artist composer performer laurie anderson Oh, least, Superman. Yeah, um, and it was from Big Science. And she had, she was kind of an experimental performance artist. Uh, and this was really her first song that kind of made it big and gave her real exposure and made it to the radio. Um, but is also extraordinarily minimalist for what you would expect to be something that was in, in the popular music realm. Ha, 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 to another thing that kind of occurs later in the track is um that kind of broken arpeggiated chord which i think is another pretty uh keynote aspect of a lot of minimalist music where you have broken up arpeggios and those consonant patterns that repeat over and over um and i think this is one of those uh where you examples where you can really hear how that has permeated into um, more of our popular culture god i love those uh the phased string synth way at the bottom, like really, really quiet in the background. And yeah, I, I love the timbres of that. that it's song. I going, going the back and, and prepping for these kind of episodes that we do anytime that we go back and look at it's two things. It's minimalism and electronic sounds. I realize that given my lifetime growing up in the seventies and eighties, these sounds are probably my most familiar musical sounds. Oh, yeah. So because because they not only did these sort of avant-garde musical ideas and, and practices penetrate the, the, the popular sphere successfully, it was so immediate and so complete that even by the early 80s, we hear these influences at the foundation of what became in the next 30 years probably our two most prominent and ubiquitous pop music styles, hip-hop and electronica. And in 1982, you have Africa Bombada with Planet Rock, uh, even sampling uh, Kraftwerk from Trans Europe mm-hmm. Express in that track. But that's considered the origin of Electro, which mm-hmm. is an, uh, 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 an early uh, and important subgenre within hip-hop. Uh, hugely influential track, Planet Rock. 
You're going to listen to that? Yeah, we're going to listen to it. Oh, cool. The, the other one, I was introducing the two of these together uh, with, with Electronica, 1983, is Juan Atkins, one of the originators of Detroit Techno. And of course, Detroit is, is the place where Electronica, as we know it, originated. Uh, kind of had a funky history, originated in Detroit, bounced over to Europe, and then bounced back to yeah. the States. But Juan Atkins in the uh, early 80s was one of the originators of this and has been very open that he was very influenced by these latter-day Krautrock bands, yeah. especially Kraftwerk, but uh, Giorgio Moroder, some of the producers who were using sequencing so extensively. Uh, and Juan Atkins talked about how the the cleanliness and precision of the aesthetic was as influential on him as any of the kinds of you know more principles about sound slow rates of change mm-hmm. uh, audible pulse things like that but the reason that you know if you thought earlier in the episode when we were describing those pillars of minimalism that man that sounds kind of like electronic dance music this is <laughs> this is why because it's you know one's the ancestor of the other so Juan Atkins uh, was in a duo with another guy uh, Cybertron released a track in 1983 called Clear mm. And that's the the other one I wanted to play. So a little bit of Africa Bombada Planet Rock and first, and then and then a little bit of Sabotron with Clear. Finally, we got some 808s going on. <laughs> Love that. Don't assume Bring everybody knows beats. what you're talking about. The the, the drum machine, I, I think both of those use an 808, but the, the Planet Rock, that's like, that's classic. Big, fat, beefy Big, fat, kick, kick drum, weird sounding cowbell. But you can hear just in <laughs> 16th those... 16th notes everywhere. Just in those two tracks, right? You can hear the seeds of the next, you know, 15, 20 years... Oh, yeah. Of hip hop in the case in the the first example the planet rock and and electronic R and B too yeah 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 I mean so so like pregnant with influence and those sounds and and again we're we're not even you know fifteen fifteen twenty years away from the origins of the style and the aesthetic in the first place it's really just amazing to me yeah oh and we should mention that there is actual there is a craftwork sample uh, from Trans Europe Express in that uh, in planet rock yes I did mention yeah. that yeah. Um, and also, I mean, in the meantime, while all this is happening, those original composers like Steve Reich and Philip Glass are continuing to make music and continuing to go deeper and deeper into the idea, further pushing everything. And so it's kind of not just like they had that first little pebble that made these ripples. Right, and then they're, they didn't write anything after yeah, that. No, they're, they're like multiple pebbles creating bigger, bigger ripples that are turning into waves now. Certainly in the modern technological age, 
H with all music, it feeds back in on itself. Like you said, this idea feeds that idea, which feeds back into me, which feeds back into, you know, so all this cross pollination by then starting to occur. And here in the early eighties, it's already influencing other composers. We get 1984, a major work from uh, probably our first significant post-minimalist composer, and that's John Adams. His piece, Harmony Lara. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, uh, it's not called a symphony for orchestra, but it is. It is. It, it is. But you can hear uh, in this piece these minimalist and minimalistic principles and aesthetic right along the same time frame as, as the early electronica and the early hip-hop being so profoundly influenced. What uh, has become our dominant paradigm in, in, comp- in composed music? post-minimalism, which has influenced so many, especially American composers, but not just, uh, is evident in John Adams, Harmony Lara. So here's a little bit of that. Okay, I'm just going to say that that's one of the most amazing pieces of music ever written. I've just got to get that out there. I kind of want to do at some point a whole podcast episode just on that piece. Now, across the spectrum, in, in major genres of popular music, in rock, in dance music, you know, latter-day disco moving into club rock or, or synth pop, in uh, early hip-hop and early electronica, uh, as well as orchestral composition mainstream orchestral it composition already permeated it's already mm-hmm. permeated all of these worlds and i can't think of another musical style that not only was that successful but was that successful that quickly i mean we're we covered what 18 years maybe yeah. well 18 years from our original uh uh, uh 19 years i guess and, uh, 65 and it, it to 84 kind of came from two places at the same time too is like another thing is it's like it was just something that sort of happened all at once. It, it was, the, an, yeah. how about an appropriate German term for it? It was the zeitgeist. <laughs> We're using so many German words today. It makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it makes me wonder. I mean, it may, it, le- it leads one to speculate <laughs> that. <laughs> why did you do that? that why, 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 why at this time? did this particular aesthetic, did people crave this? Obviously we were all sort of collectively chewing around the same thing. And I mean, was it the, the devastation and psychic shock of World War Two? Was it the Cold War? And no, the I think people had been hungry for this sound for was a it, really long was time. Was it we were after we're like 100 years into the industrial age and into the technological age and there's just too much noise and information and people want to slow down? Well, it, I think even this, the few small blips on the radar in music history that kind of started scratching at the surface of this idea really lit a lot of people up. I mean, really you know, and not to go down that rabbit hole too much, but I feel like it's been something that we have really been longing for. And I feel like it also, so your sense is a, a, it's a listener driven musical phenomenon or aesthetic. Yeah. And I think it also follows pretty directly uh, philosophically where we have come. Just if you trace where philosophy goes, when we get to this point, it's when we really start facing that, 
um, existentialist idea of, well, I'm creating it for myself and the experience of it is, is the importance and meaning of life. Whereas for a long time you were searching for something or trying to find some external answer or, you know, a lot of, well, and that's, that's what I wonder if there was there a collective psychic shock after world war two, well, where everyone sort of thought, Gather you rosebuds while you may, because the whole world may erupt in violence and murder and I, death. I think that that you, you can't ignore the fact that the machines we had were good at making this. I mean, definitely with the uh, the the German influence, that was because the machines worked this way. But that I also think lot. there's so a they were reason. swimming downstream because that's well, what the I mean, tools it was, did. Well, I, I mean, I think that I I view music as like largely it's it's a conversation between like ideas and technology. I mean that like <laughs> what machines you have to make the music, but like I I think that you can't uh, that's forget the role yeah. they play. Let's, let's can we circle that point for just a second? Sure. That I really like that point that you just made. That because we do have an episode planned a couple of, of episodes from now about technology yeah. and music. About you know, the, the the ways that developments of technology have influenced musical thinking and, and output. But you said that you think you think of music as a dialogue. It's, it's, it, that's an aspect of music. It's a di- it's a conversation between like Ideas, ideas, creative ideas, and technology, and the tools to, you have to render those ideas, and and the ideas we have influence the tools we're going to make. But the tools that we make influence often influence the ideas, the ideas we, we have. have. And like as far like uh, in 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 like the Krautrock stuff, they there's only so big a sequence you could make, and and when you make a sequence, then your hands are free to manipulate the timbres with. And with so the it becomes about manipulation. And, and if you got a drum, if you're going to use a drum machine instead of a drummer, you can put a bar, you can put two bars, you know, but like it, you. That um, part of that aesthetic is going to be just uh, guided by what tools you have to make it. But I also think there are some pretty clear, like biological and cultural reasons why people react to those sounds the way that they do. Oh, certainly. Um, and, um, and that goes back to I think a lot more of those um, either philo- philosophical influences or like you were talking about Stuart with the wars or things like how they've impacted society and culture. Um, so I think it kind of comes from both ends. I totally agree that yeah. it, like the change in technology completely drastically will alter what is possible. But then also the circumstances that we're in as as just a humanity will kind of guide us toward what we want to hear as well. Well, as, as so it happens so often hear. with us collectively, with human beings collectively, it's not just the right idea. And it's not just the right time, it's the right idea at the mm-hmm. right time so that it resonates, which is what I've said, you know, to to my students often is you, you can't get hung up on if you're making music, will somebody X population X, Y or Z like this music because you have no control over that. All you can do is make what you're making. And if it resonates, it resonates. And this is a moment of particularly notable yeah. resonance that we've lived through in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, I think. There's one more years. thing I want to add is that also the these ideas that we're talking about are applicable to such a, a wide range of, of musics. Like, the, this, these ideas work really well for dance music. These ideas work really well in, you know, concert music. The, the, they work really well for social music and protest music yeah, and political and, and music. Yeah, and they can and, sit in the background, too. And inter, um, yeah, so and I, I guess it's the, ceremonial it's, uh, music the versatility and, of that music, because music does have multiple utilities. You know, music isn't just for one thing. As well as no utility whatsoever. Yeah, but these this, these kind of principles work so well in so many different uh Music, which I think guides us perfectly into part three, which is kind of where does that bring us today, and and how much this minimalist idea in music has 
really gone into so many places. It is so familiar to us now in popular music and in composed music. Um, that and it's transparent, right? Now, at this yes. point, here we are in 2015, and it's water. Like, where this is where I started with. This aesthetic, This these ideas are so ubiquitous and, and so widespread, and so many of us have, have lived with them our whole lives. It's now the water that we swim in. And we've really openly re-embraced these ideas and have started making them our own. Rather than simply just being influenced by them, we're actively going back and working with these ideas as clay and kind of reshaping it. And so it's kind of exciting to see not only that it has influenced and is kind of like bits and pieces of it lie in what we do, but a lot of people now are really going back and saying, this is a great idea. What can What more can we do with it? There's so much left to be explored. Um, and so I think there are three kind of uh, areas in music now that I think we see this particularly clearly. Um, and, and the first one is... Or at least three that we'll mention. Three, yeah. three that occurred to us. <laughs> this is in no, by can, no means no, This is not the let's, only list. But let's be clear three, about this. This is not an academic podcast. This is also, that also applies to everything we say on this podcast yeah. ever. It's yeah, not exhaustive. Just a general <laughs> disclaimer. So, so we when we were talking about this before we recorded, there were three kind of things that occurred to us. That's what that's what you're getting at. Yeah, and and so the first one is is post rock, um, and of course this a lot of now are genres that these titles are so variable and flexible, and it really is hard to label things easily anymore. But I will do the best that we can. But broadly speaking, yeah. how do we define post rock? Um, and, and so there are, are several artists that kind of play with this idea of, of expanded gradual processes and, and uh, drawn out progressions and pulsations and things like that, and, but in kind of a, a rock package. So probably the most famous post-rock band I can think of is Radiohead. Yes. That would be a good example that a lot of people can call to mind. This is the aesthetic world that we're talking about. I... Um. Radiohead is post-rock? Yeah, I think Radiohead would be early post-rock. Okay. Absolutely. Because it fits these criteria, right? I would say that... What if are you... the criteria of post-rock? Just, I'm, I'm sorry if this is going off I, topic. I but... see them also as a little more alternative than simply post-rock. I think they're somewhat post-rock, but also alternative rock. Whereas I, th- I think of as like really post-rock is like Explosions in the Sky, Sigurus, yeah. or uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor. Late stage Talk Talk. So uh, is, yeah, shout so... out. This is, what, this is what Wikipedia says about post-rock. <laughs> oh. Are we doing this? Yeah, we're doing this. <laughs> Stylistic origins. Stylistic origins. This is important. Kraut rock. Uh, ambient, which we, we talked about that. Space rock, progressive rock, avant-garde, minimalism, dub, post-punk, electronic, and something called shoegazing, which I don't oh, even you, know what that is. Oh, I'm going to have to get introduced to You're the to appropriate that. age for that. So, wow, that fits that. that Wikipedia was right on. That's definitely post-rock. Uh, but Seeger Rose, I think, the Icelandic yes. band would be clearly, um, even though they do use vocals. Yes. Um, 
would be a clearly post rock. Um, but also the way that Yancey incorporates those Yancey vocals. Yancey being the lead, lead singer, singer of um, Seeger Rose. Is not necessarily always in a very traditional melodic sense. Um, really uses his voice sometimes kind of more as an instrument weaving into the texture rather than necessarily right. the main melodic line. So another way that we see uh, these this influence, this pervasiveness of minimalism and minimalistic thinking is EDM, electronic dance music, which is... Everywhere. The, the, Every, the global? Yeah. Is that the lingua franca of <laughs> popular music these days? I mean, I, I would guess that if you go into a dance club in any major city anywhere in the world you're dancing to some flavor of EDM. So I mean well, EDM's it, a big umbrella, isn't it? Sure, it's a huge umbrella, yeah. but boy, I mean there's a lot you can look at of all the music under that umbrella that makes yeah. it very similar and very clearly minimalistic in its origins, right? It still has if you go back to the very beginning of this episode, the things that we laid out as being essential aspects of the avant-garde compositional movement, the audible regular pulsation, consonant harmony, slow rate of change, those are all bedrock, you know, foundational features of EDM. So here's a quick clip of a, a track that was a big hit last year. Uh, Disclosure, the band duo, electronic duo, Disclosure, uh, called F for You. I've been infected with restless whispers and cheats that manifested in words and the lies that you speak. I've been infected with restless whispers and cheats that manifested in words and the lies that you speak. I've been infected with restless whispers and cheats that manifested in words and the lies that you speak. I've been infected with restless couple of things that are notable about that they're adding vocals back into electronica which is a recent trend but the vocals act like another layer on top of the mm-hmm. electronic soundscape they're not singing a melody uh and the other thing is that this music is performed live it's not uh audiences really started to grow weary of the guy turning the knobs or running the laptop and so they do perform this music as much as is possible when they they perform live. So oh, really, like like yeah. they have a like all the like all they're the playing keyboards. mini well, pads and electronic bit, drums. Yeah, there is a little like bit that. of a divide within the electronic dance music world of those who kind of quote unquote press the play button, and then there are those who are really are trying to create as much of that music in that in that time as possible. Right. So it's interesting to see uh, uh, musical artists start to try to you know reclaim some of the human performative aspect while still working in that completely electronic but, but not to denigrate performers who do no, work natively with sequences and 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 run the knobs and, and then of course beyond that even into to fringe things like m- movie scores fringe fringe cultural products <laughs> well i mean not as many people who are listening to EDM are going to be no, like, you know, people I'm, don't put I'm, on sound, movie gonna... soundtracks. As... Oh yeah, they do. It's, well, that's starting to come back. More okay, and more. that's a tangent. Movie score. That's our third thing. More, more. It's starting to become more more prevalent, but I think that's also because of this this accessibility that comes with the styles that are coming back into movies and, and how people are writing for them. Um, but I think one a current example of how minimalism really isn't just necessarily influencing but really is revitalized in our current culture um recently interstellar came out the christopher nolan film and hans zimmer wrote a score for it that is really gorgeous um but very very clearly draws upon not just influences of minimalism is minimalist music in a lot of just clear ways 
lovely soundtrack. Very evocative music, and I lovely think movie. fits the yeah. movie perfectly yeah. and just uh, and expressively very powerful. Yes, mm-hmm. and and but what's really interesting is that when I heard this music for the first time while watching the movie, even though I absolutely adored it and thought it fit the music, fit the film perfectly, I instantly thought of Koyami Skatsi, which is an independent film that Philip Glass, one of those initial four, wrote music for in, in 1981, which is a, a very similar sound palette. Let's listen to a little bit of Koyani Skatsi, Philip Glass. So firstly, Zimmer ought to be a little embarrassed about how similar his sounds for Interstellar are. Well, well at least that music got into a movie that way more people saw, that, right? Well, no, a lot of people have seen Koyani Scotty. And let me say the name of this film clearly for those of you who may not know it. It's Koyani Scotty. K-O-Y-A-A-N-I-S-Q-A-T-S-I. And it's a film that Philip Glass made in collaboration with Francis Ford Coppola, and it's it's brilliant. That's I, all I'll say about that. I've never seen it. I've always, and the music I've always been like, and the music is phenomenal. one of Philip Glass's best pieces. And like Lissette said, this brings us full circle. Because it, I mean, it shows. I mean, I'm not even mad at Hans Zimmer because, like I said, I think it fits the film that he wrote for really, really beautifully. And I like that we have this revitalization of of this minimalism that I find so wonderful. Because, like I said, it's no longer just like, oh, we like it and it's influencing us. We're really looking back and going, oh, there's so much left to explore. And how great is this? Yeah, and what's what's. What I love is that what you describe is that what was the avant-garde 50 years ago. And literally, I mean, these, like like Steve Reich, like the premiere of Four Organs famously, someone ran up and banged her head on the stage and screamed. Stop, and stop, Like these guys, like these minimalists were, were, were yelled at and, and it was shouted down. Music. It was music that people got angry about. And here we are 40, 45 years later and... Hans Zimmer is replicating this music almost exactly in one of the biggest mainstream films of 2014. And a really successful score. And everyone's raving about how expressive and and amazing the movie score is. When Philip Glass 30 years ago wrote this score to Koyani Scotsi, people are like, what is this? I don't even understand this weirdness. Uh, uh, so it's 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 fascinating to me how not just were they influential, but that influence has now, like you said, Lissette, kind of turned back around on itself and helped gain huge acceptance for the original avant-garde works of music. Well, and now Philip, people like Philip Glass and Steve Reich are are welcomed with open arms everywhere. Oh, sure, they're and fed it as American oh, yeah. treasures. They yeah. are now given that recognition that they really deserve. It, it, like you said, it's it was such kind of an, a unique thing in its time, but seeing the way that it's blossomed and, and what it's done makes it so exciting because I think it really is such a special 
discovery in our musical world. And if you don't know the original works that we mentioned, any of the German artists like Kraftwerk or Kahn or even Neu. Tan- or <laughs> Neu or Tangerine There's an exclamation Dream. point in there. Yeah, there is. There is. <laughs> new! It's not just new. It's no, new! Neu. I know, but that's what it is. <laughs> or Godspeed, you Black Emperor, also with an exclamation point. Lots of exclamation points. A, a post-rock points. band. Yeah. So if, if this is, if any of this, you know, music rang your bell, this style, sound, oh, I love that. You will probably love all of this because you're going to find common DNA, even though the packaging may di- the particular sounds that make up that music may be different from what you're accustomed to or what you like. Well, and now you may have a little bit of a deeper understanding of 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 where those things that you may like came from because you maybe responded to the stuff but just didn't know where right. these ideas stemmed from. And why our avant-garde composers and artists aren't just crazy people doing wacky things. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. <laughs> Probably most times they are. But when they get it right, when they're really on to something, they are laying a foundation. They're out ahead of the rest of us. And it's fascinating to be able to look back in such a short time frame and see the foundation that uh, that these musical artists created. 